skin itch, and you start to scratch. Skin sores. Kidney disease. Rheumatic heart disease. Rheumatic fever. Crusted scabies. Streptococcal infection. Preventable. Treatable. That's where all the sickness comes from. Though long banished to the history books in the modern urban setting, scabies is a disease that is an everyday reality in the remote Indigenous communities of the Northern Territory. One Disease is a not-for-profit organisation that aims to eliminate crusted scabies, the most serious form of the condition, as a public health concern. In this podcast series, we scratch the surface to reveal the history and origin of scabies, current treatment strategies, and just how One Disease plans to achieve their ambitious goal. Scratching the surface, the scabies story. G'day, and welcome to this episode of Scratching the Surface, the scabies story. I'm Brad Firebrace, and joining me here in Studio G in Darwin is Jacko from One Disease, a right-hand man. G'day, Brad. And our special guest for today, Dr. Dev Tillakaratna, the clinical lead in dermatology at Royal Darwin Hospital. G'day, Dev. Thanks for dropping by. Hello, and thanks for having me. Dev, you do a lot of work in scabies research and education. Have you got any fascinating facts you can share with us about the scabies mite? Yeah, so probably the most interesting fact about the scabies mite is that we don't really know much about the scabies mite. It's probably for one of the the diseases that affects around 2 million people worldwide and causes a a terrible whole body itch. We really don't know all that much about the the behavior of the mite and, you know, what it gets up to in the skin. But it's a mite that is around about 0.2 of a, a millimeter in diameter and maybe about 0.4, 0.5 0.4, of a millimeter in length. So it's extremely small. I would say it's it's almost impossible to see with the naked eye. And uh, essentially, it burrows into the most superficial part of our skin and reproduces there. The mites basically uh, then you know travel around our skin, finding uh, new areas to tunnel in, and then they lay eggs and they also excrete feces you know into the skin because they're feeding off our skin and it comes out that way and all of these elements are very irritating and stimulate the body's immune reaction to a a very significant degree and that's actually what makes people itchy everywhere even though they they may not have hundreds of mites on them they may only have uh, five or ten the only other things that we really know about its life cycle is that usually the mite lays eggs around about every three days about three eggs at a time and we rarely see the male mite. So that's probably the most elusive uh, that we know pretty much nothing about. Uh, we only know that once a male mite fertilizes the female, that then provides the female with enough eggs pretty much for the rest of the, the female's life cycle. What's an average lifespan on a mite without using anything to kill it? It's about a few weeks. And even that is, is difficult to know, you know, for sure. I mean, these, these are kind of estimations. Thus far, it's been very difficult to get um, reliable information on what happens on humans. Um, so a lot of the, the information we have at the moment is, is kind of studied in the laboratory or gleaned from the different types of mites that don't necessarily infest humans but infest different types of animals. So Brad, uh, the current application in regards to treating scabies is uh, the like likely a cream, given application, and then you come back and same person application seven days later. The first application, you kill the mites that are already alive on you. 
But underneath there, they've already laid eggs. It's about three to five days, I think, the eggs hatch. You apply the second dose one week after, so that kills those new hatchlings. So it requires a two-step treatment a week apart to make sure that you get all those mites and the ones you miss in the first application. Is that sort of the right, doctor? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. Um, that's, that's exactly the rationale behind it. What we're finding clinically is that it's a little bit more challenging than that. So 20 years ago, when a lot of the initial studies were done, the cure rates when using things like um, permethrin, which has got the brand name Lyclear, was closer to around about 80%, you know, 90% when doing it in that way, two applications one week apart. But over time, we're seeing that efficacy drop, you know, to kind of 60%, 70% in some studies. Similarly, there is a tablet treatment, which is uh, ivermectin, efficacy is dropping as well. And so in some instances, we're needing to use a combination of the, the tablets and the cream. And even then, it's not 100%. So the game is is changing at the moment. One of the activities that we're doing through Menzies at the moment is, is investigating a new treatment, which um, might be in the form of a, a once-only tablet treatment. That, that study is still underway. But the main message clinically for us is that, yes, it's important to treat and treat again, but not to become complacent that you may have actually eradicated the infestation. That becomes also complicated um, to assess because people often remain itchy for several weeks after they've even successfully uh, treated themselves. Mm. Um, So it it becomes very difficult territory in those first few weeks after um, receiving the treatment. Um, So, you know, we've still got a way to go. Yeah, and I guess that application of permethrin or Lyclea, it's not ideal treatment for an individual, you know, you, you feel yucky with all that stuff all over you and you're going to sleep with it and all that sort of thing, whereas the tablet won't have all that, but then that tablet has medical conditions attached to it from what I understand is like can't be given to teenage girls who may be pregnant and they might not be recommended for people who have comorbidity, that's a a range of other illnesses, you know, and could be chronic illnesses. So that has its limitations as well in regards to that. But then you're talking about the efficacy rates of each. Well, what about the efficacy of a combination of both, like a mixed grill? You want to comment on that? Well, well, I mean, the first comment is you're making me hungry talking about mixed grill. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, well, you're, no, you're absolutely right. So there is one big study uh, that was done for scabies that basically showed when you combine the ivermectin tablets with mm-hmm. the um, permethrin uh, cream, the efficacy rates um, were back up to around about 80 90%, which is what we were used to with just one of those treatments alone. One yeah. of the really interesting things is that there's a perception that a treatment being in the form of tablets, taking it orally, that it must be stronger or it must be better. But when you actually compare the ivermectin tablets just to like clear uh, the permethrin cream by itself, the permethrin cream actually works better. That's oh. across pretty much every study that's been done. But I suppose there are some finer points that people may not be aware of. So I suppose to anyone's listening who may be in a position of needing to treat themselves with um, permethrin cream, probably the, the two big points are, uh, number one, traditional advice has always been that it's not necessary to apply the cream on the face uh, or the scalp. But I've seen with my own eyes and with the, you know, the magnifiers that we use, scabies mites in those areas. Uh, and I've also seen people who've treated themselves perfectly well uh, and uh, upon follow-up, the only place they had the mites were on their face and scalp. So in, in my mind, even though 
it's historically maybe not thought to be necessary. We do know it happens and it's not like there's any increased risk in applying it to those areas. So my advice has largely shifted now to um, recommending that people apply it whole body. I suppose the second important thing to consider is that the cream at the moment just comes in one standardized tube size and people come in all kinds of surface area, body surface area. So it's really important that if someone is um, you know, on the larger side, they may actually want to crack open a second tube to make sure that they're actually getting good whole body coverage. Body folds especially are an area where the mite can still harbor if it's not had enough cream applied to it. I guess the other thing is making sure that the whole uh, household is being treated at the same time. A lot of the time, people make the mistake of only treating people who are itchy, failing to realize that on average, it takes around two to four weeks from when someone actually gets infested with scabies to when they become itchy from it and become symptomatic from it. Scratching the surface, the scabies story, brought to you by One Disease. Well, one disease initiative is trying to create scabies-free zones in households, and that's particularly where we might have a crusted scabies patient from that household gets hospital treatment, and as you know, they're, they're in there for a period of time. At the same time, we are out there with information, education, um, and make sure that we're interpreting and people comprehending it properly by use of language speakers, to try and establish a scabies-free zone so that when that patient does come home, there's less chance of reinfection or transmission, you know, because otherwise we just kind of have the revolving door of that crusted scabies patient and, uh, you know, they're the main transmitters for, you know, infecting others. Yeah, exactly right. I think crusted scabies is probably something that gets missed a lot of the time when we're discussing scabies, even in our discussion to date for this podcast. Really, we're, you know, most of the ways of treating uh, is only really applicable for ordinary household scabies. And, and yet, as you correctly point out, I mean, it's the crusted scabies that in a lot of instances is leading to people getting infested with, uh, you know, the household scabies form. Maybe just for our listeners, I might just outline the difference between the, the yeah. two. So basically, in uh, ordinary household uh, scabies, someone may only have five or ten mites on their body, but they'll be itchy whole body. Um, and they might even have a rash on their whole body because of how much their immune system is reacting to the mites. In crusted scabies, the issue is that it is a super infestation of scabies. It's mites stacked on top of mites stacked on top of mites. And uh, the body's immune system isn't really effectively limiting how much these mites are multiplying and and growing. Uh, And there are multiple um, possible reasons for that. But what eventually ends up happening is if if we look at net total numbers of scabies, there was one study uh, that uses a special microscope to look at the skin of someone, you know, who had crusted scabies quite extensively on their body. And they ended up having close to 20 million mites. Uh, Not that they counted them, each, each individual one, but they took samples from, you know, all kinds of places and representatively and did the maths on it. And that's what it came to. So, uh, sorry, sorry, listeners, that was just a little scratch. He's making me itchy. <laughs> keep, uh, keep going, Devin, keep going. This is interesting. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, it, I guess um, the reasons why, why this can happen to someone is usually either their immune system isn't keeping things in check or they might have uh, some kind of physical or psychological problem that actually stops them from being able to scratch 
uh, because mm. it, it is the scratching that dislodges maybe some of the mites to stop them growing in such numbers. And it seems like once things get out of control and the mites get a little bit of momentum, that's all it takes to turn into crusted scabies. So other examples would be someone has had um, a really traumatic accident and you know they can't move their arms or legs and they're, you know, they're paralyzed or, or they've got yeah. some physical immobility for that reason. They're not going to be able to scratch. Similarly, um, if someone's really depressed, they're not moving around. They're just in one place, um, incapacitated you know, by their mental illness. That's the kind of situation that can lead to crusted scabies. And really, crusted scabies is an issue where the whole community has a vested interest to want to get behind it and help manage it and, and eradicate that form of it because that's the form that's leading on to the household scabies, which is more common. Aboriginal people, they've been living with this for years. It's an illness that is rare in mainstream Australia, but it's rife in remote parts of you know the Northern Territory and tropical and subtropical environments. We harbour some of the most ugliest and, you know, terrifying bacteria that other parts, southern parts of Australia would never ever experience, hey, you know. So we're talking about getting a itch and scratch and open wound and you're getting infected, then you have uh, that strep A bug that causes rheumatic fever, you know. That's just one example of some of the chronic illnesses that could lead to. And I think the problem there is that that message isn't getting there strong or not enough or they're just sort of, Sick of it, tired of it, it's been years of it, you know, and just can't get on top of it. And that's a real hard area to convince or reconvince that this could actually lead to something more severe, you know. As far as perception in the community about what this parasite is capable of, you're absolutely right. It's very difficult, I think, for a lot of people to imagine that something that causes itch can actually have dangerous consequences. Mm. Um, and that's probably a problem with a lot of skin issues in general because it's kind of on the outside of the body and things are relatively easily seen. They might be underestimated in terms of their potential for harm. And so you're absolutely right. You know, things like getting secondarily infected with group A streptococcus and then causing a post-streptococcal glomerular nephritis, this, you know, nasty kidney disease. Yeah. Um, and then rheumatic fever uh, going on to RHD, rheumatic yeah, heart disease. Yeah, rheumatic heart disease, um, yeah. Is, you know, these are all possibilities and um, they have been demonstrated in the past in, you know, in, in numerous instances. I guess there's an analogy there to when the scabies mite was first visualised. So when microscopes were first coming into existence, the mite actually was visualized. They called it a tortoise-looking thing. These are, these are the um, Italians and the French um, you know, who were looking at it with these devices. Even though they were repeatedly extracting and identifying this mite from people who were extremely itchy with this whole body affliction, the doctors and scientists of the day just couldn't fathom and couldn't get their minds around the fact that something so small could be responsible for this whole body itch. So I think there is a history that goes back hundreds of years of us underestimating this mite, and that certainly continues today. I always think about those words, treatable, curable, and preventable. Are we talking about scabies in that regard? I suppose as a intermediary way towards getting there, there have been various points in time in the past where there were these uh, mass drug administrations um, yeah. with products like the permethrin cream or the ivermectin tablets. 
And so far, most instances where that has been done in isolated communities, it has shown quite a, a really you know, promising short-term uh, improvement. The rates of scabies, you know, go right down, including other parasites that might go along with it, say, you know, taking oral ivermectin and seeing strongyloides gut parasite rates go down. Um, but then uh, what ultimately ends up happening is with time, uh, people are moving between communities and the mite comes in and um, pretty soon, within a couple of years, things are just back to where they were previously. I suppose with the advent of this medication that's currently being trialled at the moment, that one has a longer half-life in the body. So it lasts uh, longer in the body. Instead of ivermectin, which is, you know, say 12 hours, um, you know, this is around about 30 days. So it has the potential to provide almost like a protective effect even after someone has cleared infestation. So if we're talking about possibility for mass drug administration with a longer-acting medication, that may help. It may go part of the way. But I think that really without these you know, whole-of-community approaches addressing things like overcrowding and these other very basic necessities that we're discussing, we're not going to get there. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I probably saw mass drug administration as the end point. It's almost like it's all else fails. Then you go into MDA, you know, and um, I'd like to somehow not look towards that, pull back a bit, and, and I think that you're right about those messages and you know, I think that that's the difference between participation, as far as people define it, than willful participation by the people because they feel that this is important and, you know, it's about the future. When you create that, then you know when it's really working, you know, and you're going to have an impact and there'll probably be some greater positive outcomes from that point. E exactly like, yeah. right, exactly right. I, yeah. I think it's not really just willful participation, is it? It's it's active Yes, um, yes, you know, engagement and seeking it out. You're, you're absolutely right. I suppose I wouldn't be keen to brandish uh, mass drug administration as something that we do when we've failed. In my opinion, I mean, it can still be a very useful tool to at least put us in a position where we might be able to then get the upper hand. Without it, it's difficult to see trajectory changing hugely as well. Yeah. So I guess for a balanced discussion about it. It's something that can help give us the upper hand. For example, we wouldn't look at, say, not being able to completely cure and eradicate and prevent heart disease as a failure necessarily. But when we look at situations where there are a lot of people, if we look, you know, how many people are on medications to prevent heart disease from worsening or to try and stop it from actually progressing into something harmful, that's still seen as a, as a reasonable intervention because there's only so far that diet, exercise, lifestyle can take you if your genetics are against you to some degree. So like, yeah. I suppose there are some situations where it could be seen as a useful tool but, yes, without the other side of that coin, uh, you know, it's, it's incomplete. Scratching the surface, the scabies story. To scratch a little deeper, head to onedisease.org. Deb, can you tell us about some of the new technology that may be useful for early detection in scabies? Yeah, so I guess the landscape is changing quite a lot in that regard. Diagnosis has been one of the biggest problems that clinicians have faced for a long time now, mainly because in order to accurately make the diagnosis, uh, you need to actually see the mite. Uh, anything short of that is 
trying to put the pieces together and seeing spots in the skin that kind of look like what scabies produces. Sure, there are very good patterns that we see. For example, infants produce one pattern compared to adults compared to the elderly. You know, So there are some patterns that we can see without directly visualizing the mites. But using a dermatoscope to, to see the mite itself is something that mostly only dermatologists do and perhaps some GPs who use dermatoscopes to diagnose skin cancer and things like that are adept with it. So it's a tool that at this stage is still very much uh, restricted to the hands of, of a few. So one extremely lo-fi uh, measure that we have to directly visualize mites are these USB-powered microscopes. So they're not actually medical devices. These are things that you know high school students use to look at leaves and bugs and things like that. But they have the necessary magnification to make the mite visible. I've been testing out some of these devices um, over the past few years, and I found some of the cheapest ones produce fantastic image quality, even better than the dermatoscopes, um, you know, which I, I'm used to using, which are in the order of two or three thousand uh, dollars. These very simple microscopes are kind of fifty dollars on uh, Amazon or eBay, <laughs> and have the benefit of actually being able to send them to other people, whereas our dermatoscopes are just a, a handheld device that isn't connected to anything. So uh, I just think that having some of these really cheap devices on hand um, could help someone make the diagnosis and be a little bit more sure of the diagnosis. At the complete other end of the spectrum, I've also been very fortunate enough to uh, use a reflectance confocal microscope. So this is a very high-tech piece of equipment which is still in the process of being refined. Uh, It's a fairly bulky microscope that's connected to a computer, but it it provides an image on a computer screen. And it allows a doctor to basically put it on the skin and actually see the mite blown up in huge size. So imagine seeing this thing that's 0.2 of a millimeter in diameter, seeing it the size of a a standard computer monitor. Pretty fantastic image quality. It allows us to see the, the legs of the mite moving. It allows us to see its gut peristalsis as it's eating things. And so You're not talking only, about a scary movie there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it looks pretty scary the first time you see it. Uh, the, the, like, the really important thing is it also then allows you to tell if the mite is alive or dead, you know, which is something that previously mm. we did not have, even with the other forms of imaging. And so I think that's going to be a real game changer in the future. As these kind of devices get smaller and smaller, mm. it will then allow us that extra level of information so we can gauge you know, how the treatment's going. And then I suppose the other exciting area from a diagnostic perspective is trials that have been done looking at making the diagnosis on just a swab of the skin. And if the mite's DNA is there in the lab, they can detect it. So that's really kind of next level stuff, probably still you know, a while away from being commercially available. But that takes the guesswork out of it in terms of trying to find a mite where there may only be, like I said, you know, five or ten on the, on the body. So these new technologies make me somewhat optimistic about how we're going to battle this mite in the future. One of the big picture things is now scabies is on the World Health Organization portfolio of neglected tropical diseases. And so there's a lot more funding available for projects directed in in terms of scabies diagnosis and management. And there's a lot more focus on scabies where previously there wouldn't be. So I think in the NT, we're certainly doing our part. And and now I think globally, from a research perspective, we'll be seeing more research happening and um, more engagement around this topic. So I think it's a really great time for us to be talking about this. And I guess for our listeners, I'd say just keep an ear out because there's going to be a lot more about this in the future. 
Scratching the Surface, the Scabies Story, produced by Skinny Fish Music for One Disease. You can download other episodes or the whole series from your favourite podcast provider. And for more information and resources, head to our website at onedisease.org.